All right, good morning. My name is Kevin Holmes, and I actually volunteer at the Refuge. On Wednesday nights, I serve uh, as the, one of the leaders for the 12th grade boys. They probably want to be called men, but we're not quite ready for that just yet. <laughs> okay, so uh, our scripture reading today is from Ephesians chapter 5, and you can find that on page 978 in the Bible under the chairs in front of you. Give you a couple of seconds to find that. Ephesians chapter 5, page 978. Okay. Ephesians chapter 5. We'll begin in verse 22. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives, as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of, uh, washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I'm pretty sure you all were looking forward to hearing Kevin preach this morning, uh, but he was not looking forward to it. Uh, right, brother? Thanks for uh, reading this morning for us. My name is Tim Porter. I'm one of the pastors here at Faith Community, and uh, it's really good to be in the room with you all. Uh, it was a delight in that last song. It was a delight to hear you all sing. So thank you so much for singing. It did my heart a great deal of good. And online, I just want to welcome you to joining with us. But I also want to remind you that if you're not connected to a local church anywhere, or you're not regularly being a part of a local assembly like this, I just want to encourage you to be, uh, to come and to get connected. Uh, there is nothing like hearing um, God's people singing to God um, robustly and with humility and joy. And we'd love to have you be a part of us on Sunday morning. Uh, we are starting a new series today um, called uh, Sacred Head, question mark. And that question mark is intentional uh, because there's a lot of confusion about what in the world does that mean uh, or what does Paul mean and what does the Bible mean when it talks about a husband being the head. Verse 23, the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. There's a lot of confusion. A lot of confusion because it's, it's complex, it's sort of nuanced. Uh, 
Last year, my wife and I were uh, involved in a premarital counseling uh, relationship, and uh, it was asked, we, we were asked, like, so what does this mean that the husband is ahead? And my wife and I both sort of looked at each other and like, okay, uh, how do we respond to this? Not that we don't have some ideas, but it's complex, it's, it's nuanced, and, and if it's true that a husband is ahead of his wife, as Christ is ahead of the church, that and there's different personalities and gifts and stories that it's gonna look a little bit different depending on what kind of relationship you have or what, what your personalities and gifts are. It's gonna be different. And so a lot of times my wife and I tell a lot of stories about what it at least looks like in our life. You know, in one way you can say being ahead means to lead. My wife and I love to dance. My wife is really good at dancing. I'm not. But she, we love to dance and she's helped me overcome some of the dancing. We love to go to wedding dances. Uh, we're usually like, on the last one's on the dance floor with Deb Farrell and the Lundbergs if it's a faith community dance. And we just have a great time. But, you know, if you're going to do something other than, you know, the sprinkler, or you're going to do something other than, you know, what you did in eighth grade, you know, like this, somebody has to lead. Somebody has to lead. And part of being ahead is leadership. But what does that look like? There's a lot of confusion. We want to try to bring some clarity to it, as much clarity as we can with what we know now. Not that we're experts on this at all. But when Paul is describing the husband as the head of the wife, this is a teaching that we believe is absolutely vital, absolutely vital for marriages to flourish. And so if we neglect it or if we neglect it, we, we can't escape God's world and how God has designed things. And so we're going to be butting up against something all the time. We're not fulfilling something that we're supposed to be doing as, as husbands. Our wives won't flourish. Our marriages won't flourish if we neglect this or misunderstand it or confuse it or abuse it. In counseling situations with couples and marriages, I know this for me, husbands haven't really been taught about this. Sometimes, a lot of times, you know, headship of a husband gets relegated to something either antiquated, you know, antiquated that doesn't really apply today or is relegated to just simply talking about the roles that you might have in a relationship, you know. Well, husband is head, he does this in the relationship and his wife isn't head, so she does that in the relationship. I can tell you, husband as head in my, in my relationship, I've cleaned more bathrooms, seriously, than my wife ever has. Now, she's cleaning her own now, but it, I mean... It changes, it changes. But you know, my poor wife grew up in a, we've got a household of all boys, so I am gonna take that on to get that clean as much as I possibly can. But it's not, yeah. <laughs> I've got one wife on board right now, right? No. Now all these are important roles and you know, we got, they have to be worked through, but you know, headship isn't relegated to a role or to a, a, a task that you perform. It's, it's, it's a position that determines the whole culture of a family and how it's lived out. This is why it's so important. It's also important that we talk about this is because it has been weaponized by husbands, husbands sitting in this room. Out of insecurity, not out of love or trust in the Lord, husbands have used headship to manipulate wives, seeking to get rights fulfilled rather than to sacrifice rights for the good of the other and it's given headship a bad name I don't have this all figured out 
And I know, and I, my wife has experienced, when I forget that I'm head, when I neglect or I rebel against this position that God has given me, my marriage suffers and my wife isn't cherished and nourished the way that God intends. So this is important. On the opposite side of the abuse spectrum, there's husbands can become passive. We can abdicate, either intentionally or unintentionally, a few years ago, my wife came to me with a significant concern that she had about my leadership in our family. Now, we homeschool. We've homeschooled all the way through. We graduated two sons, and we hopefully will graduate a third one. And, um, you know, and my wife, she was trained in elementary education. She gets, the, she gets education really, really well. Uh, she does just an amazing job. She's a wonderful leader. And I, I, uh, I, I bristle at micromanaging. And so I just sort of delegated a lot of this stuff to my wife regarding schooling. And she came to me one day and she just said, Tim, I feel like I'm carrying a weight that isn't all mine to carry. I had delegated some things to her and put a weight on her that was actually my responsibility. Now, I would like to say that I heard her with gentleness and understanding. <laughs> what I heard was, Tim, you're failing, and you're, there's one more thing you have to do, and da-da-da-da, all this kind of stuff. But when I really paused and listened to what she had to say, it took me a couple days to process it. I'm a slow processor with some of these things. It's like, yep, yeah, you're right. I need to learn to take more responsibility here in, this, in our relationship for this because you're carrying things that you don't need to carry. Wives tell us at times in marriage counseling situations, I just want my husband to lead. And husbands go like, I don't know what that means. And wives say, I don't know what that means either, but you're not doing it. And so this is important. So, and that, that disappointment can grow then and then bittersness starts to take root and then emotional distance. So this is really important. Lastly, there's a, there's a vision that we want to get out there that the Bible has. Something to rediscover, a beauty to rediscover and to reawaken in us. If headship is true and we'll see that God has designed masculinity for this, it was to the man that the call was given to cleave and hold fast to his wife. And we want to cast a vision for husbands, current husbands, but also for our church to help support young men in becoming heads one day that live into this vision of representing Jesus, not only to their wives, but to the surrounding community. There is an awe and a glory and a weightiness to this. And we think it's really important. Our middle son, as I was preparing for this in the last couple of weeks, I was remembering a lot of the different conversations that we've had with our, with our sons growing up. Our middle son is getting married in June. And so this is like fresh in my mind too. Like, so Ian, be listening. But, um, you know, I remember think, looking back in our conversations, like one day we're correcting this behavior right now. We're trying, to get, we're trying to bring it to your attention and correct this behavior right now so that you honor Jesus, but also so that one day your wife would flourish and not have to experience this behavior from you. So we want to, as a church, in one way what we're doing is as we're raising disciples and we're raising young men who are, who are, who are disciples of Jesus, we're, we're helping as a Christ-centered community 
for, for men to take that, take that up because a good majority of the men who grow up here will be buried one day and we can help them live into this. The tone for the series, not every, not every sermon is gonna have this long of an introduction, right? But Tim holds the record, Prince holds the record, I'm trying to outdo him. Thank you, Prince. Just, just you know, we're gonna try to live out this tone because this is really important too. Uh, Tim, I'll preach today, uh, Tim Prince next week, and then Pat Stream as well. But I just want you to know that um, when we talk about this, we're not, we're not about trying to shame guys, right? Um, no, the three of us do not have this figured out. We are learning along the way. And I grew up in the church, and I've heard enough Mother's Day sermons where moms, you guys are the best, and you guys are amazing, and you guys are, you, you should be in sainthood. And then you go to the Father's Day sermons like, dads, you guys are deadbeats. You guys need to step it up. You guys are losers. And you just walk away like, oh, man. So we're not doing that here. Um, we're trying to live into this together. And moms, you are ready for sainthood, but I just want to be clear that we're not trying to shame um, Gospel-inspired life transformation begins not with so much seeing our, our badness, but with seeing the beauty of Jesus and his power and his desire to change us. So with all that said, here are just a few things then, or as we jump into this passage then. One, Paul's using this metaphor of head and body head and body, that husbands are the head and wives are the body. Now, in one sense, that metaphor is really simple to understand. You're looking at a human being, they have a head, and then they have a body. So the metaphor is easy, at least the image of the metaphor is easy. And if you've seen the big fat, my Greek, big fat Greek wedding, we all know that the wife is the neck that turns the head, right? But another amen. Wow, this is awesome. Uh, wow. But but, but it's really interesting. Paul wants us to think about just how interconnected, interconnected we are as human beings. Like if I take my head and put it over here away from my body, guess what? Neither is surviving very well. There's an integrated, organic, mysterious connection between the head and the rest of the body, and yet the head has a certain kind of role. And so as a reflection of the teaching of this passage and what we see in, in um, the other passages that we'll look at, this is a definition that we're working on for what, what does it mean to be a head and in, in, in the interactions with marriage. That a mysterious and organic union exists between a husband and wife. So a mysterious and organic union exists between a husband and wife like the union that exists between Christ and his church. And this is now headship, for which husbands are uniquely accountable. For which husbands are uniquely accountable. Now what I'd like to do here as we walk through is I just wanna do, look at two things. One is what does it mean to be uniquely accountable? Where do we get that from? And then what's the significance of the mysterious and organic union? So first about the accountability, uniquely accountable, that the husband is uniquely accountable. So what this means is that as I stand before God and I represent our marriage and our union together, I have a unique accountability, a unique answering to the Lord that my wife does not have. We're both responsible for how we treat one another, but for the whole union, I have a unique accountability and answerability to the Lord for our relationship and how our relationship is doing. 
Where do we get that from? Paul quotes in verse 31 from Genesis 2. So this goes all the way back to the beginning. This is how God set things up. And he quotes a really important verse. He says, therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Now, the flow of the narrative in Genesis 2 is really important, so I'm going to tell you a little bit about it, and you can read it later. I really ask that you read it later, but I'm going to tell you a little bit about it right now. The flow is really important. So God makes Adam. He, God is, is, he shows himself, he reveals himself to be a potter working with clay. So the, the text says that God took some clay, took some dirt and some ground, and he fashioned it together. So God is a claymation artist. And he's putting Adam together, intimately putting him together and fashioning him to be man, a male. And then the one not good in all of Genesis 1 and 2, everything you read when God creates it, it's like, and it was good, and, and God saw it, and it was good, and it was good, and it was good, and it was good. And there's this one not good in all the whole thing, and it's, it's not good that Adam's alone. So then God, you know, the first anesthesiologist, uh, puts Adam to sleep. And then he takes from, you know, a lump of clay from his side, bone and flesh, the very stuff of Adam. He takes it out of his body. And then he starts to do claymation with his wife, with Adam's wife, and forms Eve. And then God brings Eve to, and Adam together in this first arranged marriage. And Adam sees this woman. And this woman, this person is like him, but dramatically and wonderfully and gloriously different. So whenever we think of any kind of headship, we've got, to, we've got to make sure that there's no inequality in the relationship whatsoever and no inequality between the sexes. How can a man look down at a woman when a woman was made from man? Can't do that. Right? But then, since we just celebrated Valentine's Day this last week, hopefully you did, Adam, when he sees his wife, voices the first Valentine poem ever. This is bone of my bones. This is flesh of my flesh. She will be called woman because she was taken out of man. And there's this wordplay that's even preserved, that's in Hebrew, that's also in English. Man is a part of the word woman. In Hebrew, it's a little bit, it's a little bit more fun to say. Man is, is said ish. So whenever you see, whenever you say, oh, ish, that you're talking about a man. Um, but then woman is not very bad, it's not much better, it's isha. Ish and isha, man and woman. And that's intentional. These are two individuals that have been one from the other. God took one, he diversified, and then he brings the two back together again. And what's really important to see is that God then gives the charge to Adam and every other man who becomes a husband after him to leave, forsake, sever the relationship that he has with his parents and create a whole new relationship. Therefore, a man will leave his father and mother and he will cleave to his wife and the two will be one flesh. That cleaving is a responsibility of the man to grow, to enter into a united one flesh relationship that isn't just about, one flesh is not just about sexuality. Sexuality represents 
a whole new relationship between two people are now creating a oneness relationship. And that is given to the man to do. Now again, wives, we're res- you're responsible for how to live in this relationship, but the, the, the covenant that's being established in marriage is a covenant that the husband is uniquely accountable to the Lord to cultivate, to nourish, to maintain, because a whole new relationship is being created. The closest kind of intimate relationship that you can experience as a human being is between parent and child. Because biologically, biologically, the one flesh union is creating a person that looks like both mom and dad. But even that one gets severed. That one gets changed. The husband and wife one, the only thing that separates that is infidelity with the covenant or death. This is where accountability is revealed. That the husband is accountable to the Lord for the mysterious and organic union of a husband and wife. We as husbands are accountable for uniting, maintaining, increasing oneness and intimacy. And when I talk about intimacy, I'm not using that as a euphemism for sexual intercourse. It's talking about an intimacy, a oneness of relationship, a nakedness and vulnerability of soul and heart and not just body. And we as husbands are answerable to the Lord for this outcome. What is our relationship like? Now the reason why this is so important, this is a a light bulb moment for me, is I tend to think as husbands and guys, we give, we, we abdicate the health and intimacy of our relationship with our wives in general, not 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 across the board, to our wives. Typically, when men come to counseling with their wives, it's because their wives want to come, because they know there's something wrong in the relationship. Genesis is trying to flip that. That husbands would lead the way, we need to go see a counselor because there's something not right with our relationship. That husbands are, should be in tuned, in tuned with how are we doing as husband and wife together. That's what the accountability is about. So consider this, husbands, and again, this is a a really important reflective question. Again, it's not intended to shame. It's just a reflective question to see how we're doing. In the last week, with all of the different concerns that we have, with all of your different hopes, your goals, your vocational responsibilities, any different problems physiologically or what's going on in the world, how much prayerful consideration have you given to the oneness of your marriage and how it's doing? See, these are the things that we're accountable for as husbands. Now, for me and my wife, um, it's very easy for us to lead parallel lives. We both grew up very independently. We basically raised ourselves. Both my wife and I, our parents are divorced and got re- or mine got remarried, but we basically raised ourselves in so many different ways. We're, we, we are very independent-minded. We're both very introverted. And when I get stressed out, I retreat into my head and try to figure out our problems. 
And so my wife has brought it to our attention many, many times that we are, we're, you know, we're, we're, go, we're, on, we're two trains, we're going in the same direction, but we're parallel. We're not in the same car. And that's, I'm accountable to the Lord for that. So I'm talking to her, how do I, how do I best cultivate this oneness and make sure that we're together? We're together. And what's really important to see is that Adam moved, Adam moved from this is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh to disobeying the Lord and eating of the fruit of the tree that the Lord told him not to eat to then saying when God said, did you eat of the tree that, the, that I told you not to eat from? He said, it's the woman that you gave me. And Satan is doing that all the time. He's trying to separate what ought not be separated. And husbands, for us to be proactive in knowing the state of our union and the state of our oneness, so important. We're all made, we're all made, our, all of our hearts long to be fully known and fully loved. That's what intimacy is. And as a husband, we have the privilege, the honor, the great accountability of cultivating that kind of oneness with our wives. And there's so much to fight against this. Like I said, the world of flesh and the devil. There's also a lack of cultivation of this kind of understanding in men in particular. I mean, I loved, I was so grateful that Prince mentioned last week, if you didn't hear the sermon last week, go back and listen to it, awesome sermon. We talked about how, you know, Darcy was asking him, you know, what are you feeling? He's like, I don't have feelings. Everybody around him knows he has a lot of feelings, strong ones. He just doesn't know it. Well, and he's like many of us, most of us. Emotions are hard, emotions are complicated, but especially, depending on what kind of generation you grew up in, emotions are not to be felt, they're to be stuffed down and put away. How do you then cultivate a relationship that is a lot of emotions and hear tenderly your wife's heart when she's sharing to you about your, her emotions and where she's feeling and what she's really feeling deep down inside? There's a lot that goes against this. There's an individualization, individualization as well. Coming into marriage, okay, well, you have your responsibilities, I have my responsibilities. There's a oneness that needs to come into this so that husbands, we are looking to not run parallel lives. One of the things that I think that fights against this as well is that this is what I've seen, this is my observation, I'm tempted this way as well, is that husbands hear head and think provider. And then we try to become providers to provide really well for our families, but there's so much about pride and trying to prove yourself and a sense of accomplishment and also a sense of adequacy that we feel in the workplace so that head is primarily about providing and we're not paying attention to our wives and actually we're sacrificing the intimacy and oneness of our marriage out of the sake for the sake of provision. And that ought not be so. One author, Rick Thomas, says this, a wife is a reflection and a reactor of her husband's care. Though he can be impressive in his vocation and many accolades can come his way, the real test is the reflection and reaction of his wife. This is why we called the series 
or this sermon, she is me. It's because my wife is my body and how my wife is doing is a reflection of my leadership. And that's always there. We can't get around it. Again, she's responsible for what she does. I'm responsible for what I do. But for the whole relationship, I'm accountable. What am I doing to help cultivate tenderness, care, nourishing, cherishing, flourishing? Just reminded last night, my wife and I were watching an episode of This Is Us. And Randall was told by his dad, you're going to be great someday. And he had this realization that his greatest accomplishment would be loving his wife. That's biblical. It's biblical. With this accountability comes a certain kind of authority as well. A unique accountability brings with it a unique authority, a authority that my wife doesn't have in the relationship. And husbands, you need to know that because your words always have a kind of authority to them. Your actions always have a kind of authority to them. I was just talking to my wife about this the other day. I was like, you know what? I just realized that, you know, I tend to think that I can sort of set my authority aside as your husband and just relate to you um, not as husband and wife, but just as a friend of friend kind of deal, like anybody else I might hang out with. She's like, yeah, you can't do that. I'm always thinking about your authority. And so our words, if we're harsh, are magnified. But our words and our care for tender are magnified. A great and powerful role and responsibility of being a husband. This leads to this organic union. What does this start to look like? So what are we called to do then as husbands? Um, two things here. One, we're, we're called, the, the, the job description in a sense of a husband is in 525. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. So we need to think about this, to constantly as a husband thinking about and remembering Jesus and what he gave up for me and for us, for me and my wife. So utterly astounding that Jesus gave himself up for us, the God of the universe, made you and me for union with him. And we've run away from a real vital union with him and he's done everything that he had to. Dying in our place to bring us back into union with him. A union and oneness with God, an intimacy with God that we ran away from and he recreated in his life, death and resurrection. And that's the kind of loving posture that we're called to live into as husbands. Both husbands and wives sacrifice for one another, definitely. We're both serving one another, definitely. And yet there's this chief question that the husband has. What rights of mine should I be sacrificing for the good of my wife? What things that I care about as a husband should I be sacrificing for the good of my wife? Again, sacrifice on both sides, but there's this chief question that husbands are asking. Where we've seen headship go askew is husbands are asking, these are my rights that I demand as your husband. 
the posture of Jesus is, these are my rights that I sacrifice for the oneness of our marriage, for the good of my wife, for the beauty of her life. Two different ways to go about it. The, the, the head body imagery was really prominent in ancient world. Nero was called the head of the Roman Empire and the populace, the people of Rome, are called the body of Nero. But in the ancient world, Nero was to be about self-preservation and protecting himself because the whole good of the people resided on him. And the people were to sacrifice for the head. Paul flips it. The head sacrifices for the good of the body and loves his wife. You know, so there's times when I've talked to my wife, I like came back, she, I remember one of the first times this happened, I went, uh, she wasn't feeling well, our boys were young, um, she had a long day, but she was just so kind and gracious, I had planned to go pheasant hunting, and so we were, uh, I took our dog pheasant hunting, and you know, I maybe got a bird and brought it back, I can't remember. But I remember as I was hunting, I was just, uh, this, the spirit was just starting to convict me. You're out here having a great time, and your wife is not feeling well, she gave this to you as a gift for you, totally. Honor that, but Tim, I want you to be the one who's sacrificing more. So I came back and told my wife, like, I, I didn't handle this as well as I'd like. From now on, I want to try to sacrifice far more than you ever have to sacrifice for me. In a marriage that you're trying to outdo one another and sacrificing for the good of others, looks a lot like Christ in the church. But a marriage where you're trying to promote your rights over one another looks a lot like Roman politics, American politics. What am I sacrificing for? Paul tells us in verses 29 and 30. No one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes that just as Christ does the church because we are members of his body. I'm sacrificing and seeking to love my wife that she would be nourished and cherished just as Christ does to me and to you, the church. If you think about just this short time that we've been awake today, I don't know, I was up at five, but consider all the attention that we've given to our bodies this morning. We dressed for the weather, had a tasty breakfast most likely, we brushed our teeth, take care of our hair, some of you had less hair to take care of, but maybe put some lotion on your scalp. A lot of self-care went into us today. And Paul's saying, take that kind of self-care that you naturally give to your own body. Your head is given to your own body. You're constantly thinking about different pains, different uh, experiences and feelings and uh, joys and pleasures that your body is feeling and trying to accentuate the pleasures and minimize the pains. And the more I get old, uh, the more those pains need to be accentuated or need to be taken care of. But I'm constantly paying attention to my body. Husbands, Let's constantly pay attention to how our wives are doing. Are they experiencing love and flourishing? Does, does your wife, does my wife feel a safety to share her heart that I will tenderly hold and treasure her heart, that I'll be attuned to it, 
that she's increasingly with me experiencing emotional and heart and health, uh, or heart intimacy. Rick Thomas gives these characteristics. These are to, to cherish means simply to warm, to warm, so you're warming a cool body. Rick Thomas talks this way about some of the characteristics of warming. These are what we get to put on as husbands. Gentleness, kindness, romance, humility, forgiveness, respect, encouraging, transparency, esteeming, friendly, affectionate, serving, honoring, accepting, providing, confessing, caring, agreeable, dependable, patient, and passionate. Those are some of the characteristics of cherishing that we put on as husbands. These are cooling characteristics that we want to put off with everything that God gives us to do. Harsh, apathy, abuse, bitterness, belittling, anger, selfishness, hypocrisy, silence, rejection, devaluing, passivity, proud, coarse, disrespect, accusing, hostile, self-righteous, blaming, cynical, self-sufficient, individualistic, immodest, suspicious, critical, disapproving, disagreeable, stubborn, and sarcastic. Those are the things we want to put off. Those characteristics, if we put those off, our wives will be nourished and cherished. Your body will be built up. C.S. Lewis talks this way about the weight of our neighbor's glory and our wives, husbands, are our closest neighbors. He says this, it's, it may be possible for each to think too much of his own potential glory in the hereafter but it's hardly possible for a person to think too often or too deeply about the glory of his neighbor. And the load or the weight or the burden of my neighbor's glory should be daily laid on my backs, a load so heavy that only humility can carry it and the backs of the proud will be broken. See, it's a serious thing to live in a society or to be in a household with possible gods and goddesses to remember that the dullest, most uninteresting person you talk to may one day be a creature with which if you saw it right now, you would be strongly tempted to worship because of the beauty and glory. <laughs> or else a horror and a corruption as such as you meet now, if only at all, in our worst nightmare. And all day long, in some degree, we are helping one another to one of these two destinations. There are no ordinary people You've never talked to a mere mortal. You don't live in a wedding or in a marriage relationship with a mere mortal. You're married to someone who is glory bound. And one day, if you saw her, if you saw her now, what she will be like one day, you'd be tempted to worship her. That we would treat our wives in that kind of a way. What do we do? I'll be short here. First, if all this is true, if all this is true, and I really put that out there for consideration, if all this is true, we need to first remember the gospel. 
all change, all gospel-inspired change starts with the goodness of Jesus and his mercy. So Paul says this, Christ loved the church. And so husbands in, in Christ, this is you. Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that, he might, that she might be holy and without blemish. Brothers and sisters, please remember that Jesus is not about trying to show us just our faults and then shame us and belittle us. He wants to change us. He's made us for something great. And he is the one who changes us. He is the one who nourishes us. He's the one who helps us. So keep coming back to Jesus. We start with Jesus. Wherever you're at as a husband right now, you are loved deeply and dearly by Jesus. And Jesus, though, loves you so deeply and dearly, he will not let you stay where you are. All of us, all of us are growing. All of us are changing. And Jesus does that. So this is not pull up your boots, uh, pull up your boots, and you know just get to work. That's not what this is about. It's about first worshiping, worshiping the Jesus who made you and who calls you to be a husband, who will change you, who will do that. He's committed to it. The other is, you know, just building off of the "Why do I do what I do?" series. There's three hearts I want to ask you to pay attention to, husbands. I want to ask you to pay attention to Jesus' heart. There's this direct relationship. The more that I embrace and the more that I believe and the more that I uh, enjoy and live in Jesus who says, come to me, all you are burdened and heavy laden, I will give you rest because I am gentle of heart. The more that I experience Jesus' gentle heart, the one who stood up to um, Pilate, the one who stood up to all kinds of people, this bold heart that's also tender and gentle, the more that I experience that, the more my wife experiences that. First and foremost, changing as a husband is worshiping Jesus and knowing his heart. The other is fruit to root with our own hearts, with whatever behaviors that we need to put off or fruit root. So go back and listen to the series. If you are apathetic, why are you apathetic? What does it look like to, to, to become more intentional in a relationship? So root to fruit is really important. But then the other heart to really, 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 really pay attention to in all this is your wife's heart. Asking her, what does she feel? What does she think about the relationship? And one of the things I wanna ask you to do, this is homework for this week, is at some point in time, husbands, I wanna ask you to ask your wives two things. One, where are you feeling cherished by me in our relationship? Second, where are you not feeling cherished? And what you hear can be really scary, but in that moment to take that, receive that, hear it, confess it humbly to God and ask him, to change you. It's really, really, really important because we're accountable to the Lord for this relationship that he's called us and given us the privilege and being a husband is a great joy and privilege but it has a great accountability that Jesus longs to help us live into.
I'm gonna ask you to stand right now. I'm gonna pray for us and we're gonna sing one last song together about Jesus' goodness and grace and power and might. Holy Spirit, we are here and gathered in this point in time by your design. And we ask that you would speak. We ask that you would comfort us with your with the love of Jesus and that you would also challenge us with the love of Jesus. That we would not stay content with how we're loving and leading as husbands and that as a church we would not stay content to just let husbands and guys grow up to not feel the, the, the weight of the accountability and the resources in the gospel in Jesus' love for becoming more. God, I ask that as we praise your name, that you would be glorified and our hearts would be lifted up with great joy over who Jesus is. He's the one that you delight in, your only son, our Lord, our Savior, our head, and we are his body.